This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay. Last time we discussed the destruction of the first base Hamigdash, the first temple in Jerusalem, based on the commentary of the Ma'am Loes. We will now continue with the story of the destruction of the second temple as told over by the Ma'am Loes and uh, he, the Mamlois was written in Ladino. This is all written over and translated into English by Rabbi Arya Kaplan, one of the last great experts at the language Ladino, which is almost entirely lost today. The first base on Migdash, the first temple, stood for 410 years. The second temple stood for 420 years. The sages tell us that the first temple was destroyed because of the sins of idolatry, promiscuous behavior, and, uh, uh, and homicide and murder. The second temple, which was a very different temple than the first one, much less miracles, much more intellectual rigor, much more prayer, uh, halacha being taught, Jewish law, Mishnah already being started, started the, the teachings of the Mishnah start already in the time of the second temple. There were not any more prophets. The prophets died at the beginning of the second temple era. The miracles dried up at the beginning of the Second Temple era. So the Second Temple era is really a a very, very different type of feel. A lot of the open miracles were gone. The Second Temple was a much more, if you describe the First Temple as one that was much more deeply connected on an emotional level to God, you had prophets everywhere, miracles everywhere. Uh, The Second Temple was one in which there was much more intellectual rigor, much more of the study of Torah, more prayer, which had been instituted by the men of the Great Assembly into a formalized prayer. Before that, there was no shul. There was no, there was no shul service in the first temple, right? People went to the temple to bring offerings, but there was no such thing as a, as a, a formal prayer service. That was instituted by the Anshe Knesset Sagdola, the men of the Great Assembly, who lived at the beginning of the second temple era. So, the second temple era is very different than the first temple. First temple is 410 years. Second temple is... For, stands for 420 years. Now, towards the end of the Second Temple, almost midway through the, the process of the Second Temple, the Greeks subjugate the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Of course, that is where they start bringing on intense religious persecution of the Jews. That is when you have the story of Hanukkah, when Matisyahu, the king, the, sorry, the son of the of Yochanan Kohen Gadol, of Yochanan the high priest, leads the successful rebellion of the Maccabees against the Greeks, and eventually, after many many years of war, they take back the control of Israel and Jerusalem. They install their own family into power as the kings over Jerusalem, which was a big mistake because Jacob had prophesied. Many years earlier, when he was giving the, the blessings to his children, Lo Yasser Shevet Mi Yehuda, the scepter shall not leave Judah, that once the Judean kingship started with King David, the first king of the house of Judah, it was no longer supposed to leave. The Kohanim, the priests who had been the heroes of the Hanukkah story, should have taken back the land and then given it back to the remnants of the house of David, and instead they took it for themselves. For this they were punished. And a slave from their household named Herod ended up usurping the throne, making a coup and killing out the Hasmonean dynasty, the Hashmonaim. And King Herod was a vicious, brutal Truly paranoid, sociopathic person. I mean, if you actually read the stories about him, what he did, he was horrific. He was also an extraordinarily brilliant, brilliant architect and designer. Of course, he made the the, uh, the entire port of Caesarea. He created a port where there was not supposed to be a port. Ports are generally created on areas of land that have a, a natural cove or a natural harbor. He's like... I'll create a port city wherever I want, which he did. He created the stronghold of Herodium in, in northern Israel. He created the building of the Ma'aras and Machpelah, the cave of the patriarchs, that still stands until today. Incredible feat to be able to create a building that will last for 2,000 years. You know, today we're creating buildings, and 20 years after they're built, you know, the, 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 the rafters are coming apart. He built buildings that lasted for 2,000 years. 
He also killed off most of the rabbis, and then he felt bad about it. And as an act of penance and contrition, he rebuilt the entire Temple Mount and made it into this incredibly glorious temple, and in doing so greatly enlarged the structure of the Temple Mount. He basically cut off the entire top of a mountain and built it into a massive plaza. When we go to the Western Wall, we are praying at the back of the wall, the Western Wall, not of the Temple, but of the plaza that held the Temple inside of it. And he rebuilt the Temple. After him, there was a new king called Agrippas, Agrippa in, in Greek, and it was in his time that the temple was destroyed, and he was a Roman vassal. He, at that time, the Romans had taken power over from the Greeks, and he was a Roman vassal. Now, there were a number of signs that happened prior to the temple destruction that were omens. A year before Vespasian, who was the first general to siege Jerusalem, and we'll learn more about him in a moment, a year before Vespasian came to Jerusalem, right over the temple, a comet, a, a heavenly body, a celestial body appeared, and it had the form of a man holding a sword drawn in his hand. It appeared right by the holiday of Pesach, and it remained there for the entirety of the seven days of Pesach. The rabbis told the people this was a very bad sign. They said, no, it's a good sign. Hashem is... His, his hand is stretched out over Jerusalem, protecting us. In those days, they brought a calf as an offering, and when they threw it to the ground to slaughter it, it gave birth to a sheep. Quite a miracle, and people said this was an omen. And again, the rabbis said, not a good omen. They said it's a good omen. Lastly, there was a massive gate to the temple, the eastern gate, and it was huge and ornate and extraordinarily heavy. It normally took 20 men to open it. And the sound of the hinges creaking and the sound of this massive gate being opened was so great that you could hear it from a great distance. And it would take the same number of people to close the gate. However, the door started opening on its own. And the people said, this is a great omen. God is, is opening the way for us. And the sages said, no, this is, this is not a good omen. This is not a good omen. Another omen, there was an image <clears throat> like the face of a man hovering over the Holy of Holies, fierce but incredibly handsome, like one had never been seen before in those days. People saw also a vision of what looked like an army of chariots and horses galloping over Jerusalem. Fiery horses and fiery chariots. So there were a lot of different signs here that something was really, really off. Now, the final straw. Obviously, the rabbis had been admonishing the people. At this time, there was a large dispute between different factions. Israel had become, the Jewish people had become very factionalized. They'd become, there were these groups and these groups. It was very, very nasty at this time already. A lot of sin as chinam. But the straw that broke the, the camel's back is a famous story that happens when a wealthy man made a party in Jerusalem, a very wealthy, wealthy man. Jerusalem, by the way, as we're going to see, was a massive metropolis, extraordinarily successful, wildly wealthy, and there were over a million inhabitants. Now, this wealthy man made a party and he invited his good friend, Kamsa. However, the servant who went to deliver the invitation, it was a handwritten invitation, and the servant who went to deliver the, uh, the invitation misheard. And he thought his master said, bring this invitation to Bar Kamsa, who was somebody else. And this man hated Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa, by the way, interestingly, there are those that say, the word Bar Kamsa means the son of Kamsa. There are those who say that literally Kamsa and Bar Kamsa were father and son. And part of the great tragedy is that you could have a man who hates the son but loves the father and they couldn't figure out a way to reconcile it. Even parents would allow feuds to go on with their own children and not find a way. If my best friend hated my child, would I not do everything in my power to bring peace between them? 
In any case, Bar Kamsa comes to the party, and he's at the party, and the host is walking around, and he sees his enemy, Bar Kamsa, there, and he walks over to him, and he starts yelling at him, what are you doing here? And he says, look, I got an invitation. That, that, that invitation wasn't for you. That invitation was for Kamsa. Why in the world would I ever invite you? I hate you. <laughs> so the guy says, listen, I'm sorry. It's embarrassing. It was a mistake. I thought, we, I thought you wanted to make up. I thought this was an opportunity. You know, sometimes you send somebody a Shalach Manas, you don't get along so well, you know, in Purim, you send them a little gift, a gift basket. You don't get along so well. It's a way of saying, extending an olive branch. I thought maybe this was an olive branch. Maybe you're, you, you're finally ready to reconcile with me. I don't want to reconcile with you. Get out of here. I'm having, this is one of my biggest parties. I don't want to see you here. You're an eyesore. So the man says, listen, he says, look, do me a favor. Don't, don't embarrass me. Don't throw me out like this. You don't want to pay for me. I get it. I'm your enemy. I'll pay for my own way. And I says, I don't need you to pay for your own way. It's painful for me to see you in my party. Get out! He says, look, please stop. You're really, really embarrassing me now. I'll pay for half this party if you just let me stay. And I says, I don't want your money. I want you out of here, you slime ball. <laughs> and he's so embarrassed. He says, look, I will pay for the entire party if you just let me stay here and stop embarrassing me. And he says, I wouldn't hear of it. And he calls... Let's go. Let's pull this man. They start dragging him out of the party. And it's immense humiliation for Bar Kamsa. And at that time he said, who was at this party? It wasn't just the rabble-rousers. There was rabbis at this party. There was great people at this party. They all saw my humiliation. They all saw my degradation. They saw me being dragged out of the party. No one said a word. That's it. I'm going to destroy these people. So he sent the message to the king that the Jews are rebelling against you. He sent a message to the Roman king. The Roman king said, how do I know? So he said, look, you'll send an offering and you'll see the Jews will refuse. The halacha is, the Jewish law is that you're allowed to bring an offering sent by a non-Jew. So he says, watch, you try to send an offering, the Jews won't even bring it up on their temple and you're the king of Rome. So he sends an offering. Now Bar Kamsa made a little, a little mum, a little... Uh, a little nick in its eye or its lip, whatever it was, which to the pagans, that was not a big deal. You could bring an offering with a nick, but the Jews don't allow that. But they had a special session where they said, what should we do? If we don't bring the offering of the Caesar, he's going to come and try to destroy us. So they said, maybe we should just bring it. But there was a rabbi there named Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkilos, and he said, people are going to say, you're allowed to bring an offering with a nick. We can't bring it. They said, maybe we should kill Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa is trying to destroy the Jewish people. Let's just assassinate him. Right? He's, can you imagine being able to kill Hitler before Hitler... This guy's trying to kill us out. Let's just kill him. Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkilos again says, people are going to say, if you make a nick in an animal, that's supposed to be an offering, that, that we, we kill you for that. So they ended up not bringing the offering. He went back to the, the Rome and said, see, the Jews are clearly rebelling against you. And the Roman Caesar sends... Nero, his general, to go destroy the temple. Now, by the way, later on the Talmud, it says his zealousness to follow the halacha, he was overly righteous. There are times where you have to know when there are, there's room to bend the law, and his zealousness in fulfilling the letter of the law ended up costing us the temple. Now, of course, let's just remember that there were a lot more reasons that the temple was destroyed than this Rabbi Zechariah ben Avkilos. But the point is, the sages are trying to tell us, is you have to know when to make your stands. Don't make Custer's last stand out of every, every you know, Shabbos dinner. You know what I'm saying? So, out of every, when it comes to family, when it comes, this is for us the lesson should be. Sometimes just let go. Okay, now. Nero, the Roman general, he's a little nervous because he knows that destroying the Jewish people and their temples is not good for your longevity. Once you start destroying the Jewish temple, no life insurance companies will sell you life insurance. Like, that's it. It doesn't work out. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar ended up being stark, raving mad, going, crawling around on all fours, barking like a dog for years before he, was, before he died in utter humiliation and degradation for destroying the first base of Migdash. So Nero doesn't know what to do, so he starts shooting arrows. And wherever he shot an arrow, it would just turn around and fly towards Jerusalem. So he's, there used to be a method of trying to understand what 
God wants, you would ask a child, like, what did you learn today? And whatever the child would say would be a great sign, a divination of what's going to happen. So he asked the child, what did you learn today? The child says, A verse from Ezekiel that says, I will give my revenge against Edom through my people Israel. Edom are the Romans. They're from the descendants of Edom, which are the descendants of, the, the descendants of Esau. So Nero says, this God wants me to go destroy his temple from him, then he's going to take his revenge on me. He runs away and becomes a convert. One of his descendants is Rabbi Meir, one of the greatest authors of the Mishnah. So then the Roman Empire sends a general named Vespasian to attack. He lays siege on Jerusalem, surrounding it on all four sides. He brought four huge troops, one of Arabs, one of Philistines, one from Alexandria, and one from Africa. The siege around Jerusalem would last three years. Now, you're going to hear stories now. It's, it's really wild. The, the Romans at this time, they were the most powerful force in the world. They took over countries like we sit down for dinner. You know what I'm saying? Like they, were just, they, would, they were the most powerful force in the world, bar none. And yet... It would take them three years, and as we're going to see soon, tremendous losses on their own soldiers before they could take down Jerusalem. God is showing it's not going to be you who's going to take down Jerusalem. It's going to be me who's going to allow it. Because the feats that you're going to see that my people will inflict upon you, the pain and suffering you're going to have to go through to get Jerusalem will show you you don't have a chance. Now, there were three wealthy people in Jerusalem. One's name was Nakdimon Ben-Gurion. He was given this name because the son shown in his merit, it's a longer story, not for right now, Nakdachama Ba'avuro, the word Nakda means to shine. The son shone for him, a different story related to a righteous thing that he had done, and the son, the son came out, even though it wasn't supposed to, just to shine for him. So that's Nakdimon Ben-Gurion. Then there was a guy named, not guy, a wealthy man named Ben-Kalba Savua, which means... The son of a satisfied dog. Because anybody who came to his house hungry like a dog would leave fully satisfied. He was incredibly generous. And the last person's name was Ben Tzitzis Hakitsas, which means the tassels on the mat. He was so wealthy that wherever he would go, his servants would lay out uh, beautiful carpets so that his tassels, his tzitzis, would not drag on the ground. Wherever he walked, his tzitzis would drag on beautiful carpets and they would leave them behind for the poor. One other opinion is he was called that because the word Hakitsas, his real name was Ben Sittis, and Hakitsas means a throne. He was so wealthy, he would sit in the thrones of Rome when he would go to visit there because he had such political influence. One of them said, I will supply the city. I have enough storehouses full of food to supply the city for 21 years with wheat and barley. The next one said, I have enough to supply the city with wine, salt, and oil. And the third one said, I'll supply them with wood for cooking. The rabbis say the greatest, most generous offer was the one who said, I'll give the wood because it takes 60 measures of wood to cook one measure of wheat. Now, the problem is that they could have withstood a siege for 21 years, which would have been more than enough to wear out the Romans. There was a group of people in Jerusalem who were known as the Biryonim, the Zealots. They were terrorists. They were not following rabbinic orders. They were just zealots who felt that they were going to defend Jerusalem in the name of God. And they came to the rabbis. They said, rabbis, let's go out and fight these Romans. And the rabbi said, we will not be successful. We don't have the merits. Whatever you do, do not fight. We can stay here in Jerusalem. We have food and provisions for 21 years. Do not go and fight. We don't have the merits. But of course, the zealots always know better. They always know better, so they decide they, they want to fight. But no one wants to fight if you've got food for 21 years. So these terrorists burn down the storehouses that had all the food that Jerusalem could have sustained itself on for 21 years. And then the famine begins. It becomes so serious. There was a woman in Jerusalem whose name was Martha Bas Bysus. Martha, the daughter of Bysus. 
She was from one of the wealthiest families. When she was married, her dowry was millions of gold coins. She's sitting in her palace and she tells her servant, go out and buy us the finest, the finest meal, the finest flour. He goes out to the market, he comes back, he says, there's no more fine flour, I can get you white flour. She says, okay, get white flour. He goes out to the market, he comes back, there's no more white flour, there's dark flour. The more, of course, today, the, you go to Whole Foods, the expensive one is the, the whole wheat with all the stuff in it. But in those days, the finest flour was, was the whiter flour uh, with more fluffy, more uh, light, but not as rich in nutrients. In any case, she says, go get the dark bread. He goes out, there's no dark bread. Finally, she's like, get whatever you can. And by the time he goes out, there's not even the dark barley cakes they would serve to the, to the uh, animals. So she says, i got to go out myself. She goes out and, and the, the shuk, the marketplaces of Jerusalem, are empty. They've been wiped out of all food. She sees on the floor a fig. And she takes it and she takes it and she puts it in her mouth. And she suddenly becomes incredibly nauseated. This fig had been sucked on by a man named Tzadok Cohen. We'll, we'll learn about him Sorry, not Tzadok HaKohen. Rav Tzadok. Rav Tzadok was a righteous man who saw the signs that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. He saw the doors opening. He saw the signs of the impending doom. And for 40 years he fasted so that Jerusalem should be spared. When it finally came time, if he, would, he, he fasted during the day. Obviously, if he fasted 24-7, you wouldn't be able to fast for 40 years. He was so frail that if he, anything he would eat, you could see it going down his gullet. And he had to be, eventually he was nursed back to health by Roman doctors. But when he was finally being nursed back, one of the things that he would do is he would suck on a, a fig just to get the nutrients, like the, some of the sweet, syrupy taste, and then he would just, he couldn't, he couldn't eat it, he couldn't, it was too rich. So he would, he would throw it out. But if you can imagine the, the smell, he must have been, he was not a healthy man, and she was a delicate woman. She had been used to the finest, finest foods and the most <coughs> incredible delicacies. And she gets so nauseated that she starts, she starts gagging and dying. From just, she gets overcome. And she runs back to her house. And she's gagging to death. And she starts throwing out gold and silver. Saying, what use is gold and silver when there's no food? Fascinatingly, I heard from Rabbi Ephraim Waxman who once told over a story how he was, he, he met a Holocaust survivor and he asked him, what was the most stark thing you saw in the entire time you were in, the, he, was in he was in years in the Holocaust? He said, what was the thing that left the greatest impression? He said, he was in the Warsaw Ghetto and as they were liquidating the ghetto and people were being forced out of these apartment buildings, he's going downstairs and there was a very, very wealthy man who had been penned into the Warsaw Ghetto and he knew that this was his last night. They were going to truck him out. And he was taking hundred stacks of $100 bills, which in those days $100 was a fortune. He was taking stacks of $100 bills and tearing them up and, and flushing them down the toilet, saying, if I'm not going to have it, the Nazis are not going to have it. But seeing that vision of somebody destroying money, Marta Basbaisos, at the end of her life, is throwing out all the money. What's money when you're starving to death? At first, they would send down a basket filled with gold coins and they would get sent back up a basket of wheat and then barley and then just straw and they would cook the straw and they would drink the water and then in the end they were just lowering down baskets of coins hoping something would be sent back up and nothing was being sent back up. When Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saw what was going on, the great sage, he called for his nephew who was one of the leaders of the Biryonim. His name was, according to different opinions, Ben Batiach or Abba Sikra. And he said, look at what you have done. Look at the famine you're inflicting upon the people. And he said, well, if we didn't make them hungry, they wouldn't go fight. They would just sit here and be complacent. He said, you did a terrible, terrible thing. He says, I want to leave now. He said, we can't, we can't let you out. The city will only allow a corpse out. So he says... So we'll pretend like I'm a corpse. So they, they put him in a, in a casket, and in the casket they leave a, 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 dead animal, a dead animal that was very, very disgusting smelling. 
And, they, and the students come carrying the rabbi, and they say, we've got to go out and bring him out and bury him. He announced for a couple of days that he was very sick, and they say they're going to go bury the rabbi. And the Bryonim, these zealots, these terrorists, say, we have to stab him to make sure he's dead. They say, stab him? People are going to say you stab your rabbis in their death. All right, we'll just slap him around a little, make sure he's really dead. Said, people are going to say you slap around your rabbis in their death. Said, okay, fine. They let him through. They let him through and he goes to Vespasian. And when he approaches, he asks the, the Roman soldiers, I'd like to speak to the general. And the general says, fine, let him in. And when he comes into the Vespasian, he says, peace be unto you, king. Vespasian says, how dare you talk to me like that? I'm not a king. I'm a general. How dare you disgrace Rome by calling me a king? We have a king. And furthermore, if I am a king, why haven't you come sooner? And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, of course you're a king, because we have a verse that says, Lebanon ba'adir yipol. Lebanon, which is the, the holy temple, will fall to a mighty one, to a king. You must be a king, or destined to be a king, if you're going to be the one who destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And he says, you asked me, why didn't I come earlier? We have these terrorists that are terrorizing our people. We don't want to fight with you. But these terrorists, they're the ones who are doing it. So Vespasian says, let me ask you a question. Imagine I have a barrel full of honey. And wrapped around the barrel is a viper, a snake, a poisonous snake. I got to get rid of the snake. So what do I do? I got to crash the barrel. Now, of course, the correct answer that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka should have told Vespasian is: you take a tongs and you remove the snake and you save the barrel. That we will try to do what we can with you to remove the terrorists and save the city and spare the people inside. But sometimes God closes up the mind of even the, the, the smartest people. There's a verse. In Isaiah that says, Meshiv Chachamim Achor, Vidatam Yisachel, that Hashem puts the wise men's answers behind them and makes their minds foolish. Like he couldn't he couldn't answer. So Vespasian says, I'll give you, I'll grant you some wishes. Now, interestingly, the Mamloi says, first of all, they wanted to discern how, how wise he was. So they put him inside of a room that was inside of a room that was inside of a room that was inside of a room, seven chambers in, where there was literally no light, nothing coming in. And they left him in there. And they would knock on the door. They'd say, what hour is it now? It's the fourth hour. A few hours later. What hour is it now? It's the seventh hour. What hour is it now? It's the ninth hour. They said, Rabbi, how do you, how do you, how do you tell the time? There's not, there's no, you can't see. There's no light. There's no moon. There's no sun. He says, I, I'm reviewing the Mishnah all the time. And I know I can review ten chapters of the Mishnah every hour. So I know exactly where, where the time is. So Vespasian sees this man as a very saintly man. He says, I'll give you a few wishes. Sorry, before that. He went to bathe in the river, and as he's bathing, he comes back from the river, he's getting redressed, and somebody comes over and announces that the previous Caesar had died and Vespasian had been elected as the new Caesar. So Vespasian sees that the rabbi was indeed correct. So he gave him a few different offers, like... What, what can you do? He should have, of course, he said, I'll give you one wish. He should have said, don't destroy Jerusalem. But again, Hashem did not allow him to say that. So he said, first of all, when you conquer the city, spare every, everyone who tries to escape on the west side before 10 o'clock. He said, I want you to save the Davidic line. We have a tradition that Mashiach will one day arise. So even while the city was, Israel is being destroyed, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's mind is on the future. He says, I want you to save and make sure that the descendants of David are still alive. And lastly, I want you to heal Rabbi Tzadok. And the way they healed him is first they would just serve him water in which some bran had been uh, soaked. soaked. And eventually more and more and more just to get some nutrients in. And that's how they brought him back to life. When, when Rabbi Tzadok came, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai stood up immediately before Rabbi Tzadok, who was a great, great rabbi, and Vespasian says, why are you standing up for this old, this simple guy? And Yochanan ben Zakkai said, you think this is a simple man? If there was two of them, you could have brought double the troops and you'd never get Jerusalem.
There was two of them. Now, on his way back, Vespasian goes back to Rome. He had been appointed as the new Caesar. He goes back to Rome to rule. And he takes back with him 300 young Jewish boys and a number of girls that were going to be sold in Rome for illicit purposes. As they're going back on the boat, the women say, this is not the life that we want to live. We'd rather give ourselves to God than be used for immoral purposes in Rome. And they get up as one, they were chained to each other, and they get up as one and they leap off the boat. And they drown. And the boys say, if the girls are ready to leap off the boat rather than have to go through that, how much more so should we? And they leap off the boat. Vespasian sends his son, Titus, Titus, to be the next general to take down Jerusalem. The siege is so great that people start eating garbage. People are eating dung because it might have some un some undigested nutrients. If there was a blade of grass, if there was a mouse, if there was a snake, if there was a mole, any living thing, they would fight over it. You know, I went to Auschwitz with a Holocaust survivor. And one of the things that he told us when we were walking around, you know, if you go to, if you go to Auschwitz right now, I mean, the place is horrific. But it also has, like, it's, a, it's like a little bucolic. You have all these grassy plains, and they, I'm sure they come and they cut it every week or whatever it is. And I remember him looking. He says, do you think there was a blade of grass in Auschwitz? There was never a blade of Every blade of grass would have been eaten. This is all just mud. The people of Jerusalem are eating. They're eating anything they can find. There were some people who had wheat stored away in hidden places. They were afraid to make bread because at the minute anyone would smell the bread cooking, they'd be you know, at risk of their lives, people coming to get it. So they would eat their wheat raw, dry. Anyone who had any food would be literally fighting and grabbing over it. People would sneak through the gates to try to eat food. And the Romans would either capture them and kill them, or the Beryonim, the zealots, would capture them and kill them. Don't try to leave. Stay here and fight. If there was a dead horse or any kind of... Whatever it was, they would be fighting over it. It was, it was so horrific. When people would come out with their families, they were starving. People would come out at night to try to find some food. The Romans would take them and they would kill the children as well. They say, we don't want these children to grow up. They're going to become like their fathers. They're going to try to fight us. And eventually the Romans crucified 500. They would crucify as a fear, a fear tactic. They crucified 500 men, women, and children facing the wall of Jerusalem, saying, this is what will happen to you if you try to come out and get food. The zealots then crucified the people that they were capturing from inside who were trying to escape, as well as any Roman soldier, and eventually the zealots crucified 500 people facing outward. And Titus said, I don't care, you can crucify as many of your own people, you can crucify as many of my people, we're not, we're not going anywhere. The zealot said to the people, it's better for us to die free inside over here of starvation and fire in God's temple and sanctuary than to become slaves for the Romans. Now, I just want to tell you one horrific story that happened just to show you how horrible it became. There was a wealthy woman in Jerusalem whose name was Miriam. Miriam of Transjordan. She had come to Jerusalem with her slaves and her wealth. And unfortunately, she got caught there when the city was closed off. And she's trying and trying and trying. And her son, she had one child. And her son is coming to her every day. I need food. I'm starving, mommy. And eventually, she, just, she had nothing to serve him. 
And there's nothing more difficult than for a mother to see her child starving and she has nothing to give him. So, eventually, out of absolute desperation, one day she turns to her son and she said, what can I do for my son? God's anger burns around Jerusalem. On all sides there is famine. The sword stalks outside and fear on the inside. In the city, the terrorists are terrorizing us. In the city, there's destruction and fire and starvation. Nothing I can do. I can't alleviate any of your pain, my son. If I die of starvation, who will help you? You'll die slowly of starvation yourself. There's nothing more I would like to see than see you grow into your old age. You would give me food and drink and dress me and take care of me. But now that won't happen. And if you can't take care of me in my old age, at least you can take care of me now. Allow the womb that created you to now be the grave that you return to. Allow me to once again, I gave you life, and now you will give me life. And she... Tenderly, almost lovingly, slaughters her own son. She cooks a meal. The people in Jerusalem smell the smell of meat. They can't believe it. The terrorists show up. And she says, Here, let me make you let me make you a plate. I had I, I, I squirreled away something. I had something. Let me make you a plate. They sit down. And she serves them on her finest dishes. And she says, here, here is my son's hand. This is my son's heart. This is my son's leg. This is what you made us do. You starved us all to death. Now eat up. Now you don't want to eat? What's wrong? This is the meal that you served us all. Death and starvation. That's how bad the starvation became. Despite all that, the siege on Jerusalem took, like we said before, three years. There were many times that the Jews experienced the Bryonim, who were zealots, and they did all the wrong things, but they were enormously successful. When Titus finally starts deciding to knock down the wall, he has battering rams and siege towers that he brought with him. These people were the most learned people in war in the world. The Romans had been successful at conquering the whole world. So they bring their battering rams and they bring their siege towers against Jerusalem. The Bryonim get together. There was four men one night who got together and decided, let's go out and fight. The four men... Sorry. These are Yochanan's men. The three generals of the Bryonim were Shimon, Yochanan, and Elazar. Yochanan, one of the men, the heads of the terrorists, left the camp with his men. They dug the dirt under the wheels of the wagons. They would push the wagons up to the wall. And they dug ditches under the walls. They covered it with, put tar in the ditches. They covered everything with tar and skins, with pitch and sulfur, and they lit it all on fire. The Romans were guarding the area. Many of them would sleep on the platforms, on the battering ram platforms. They were exhausted to go down and come up, go down and come up. They just would sleep. And suddenly they start burning beneath them. And the Romans come to try to stop the burning. And the Biryonim, these zealots, were able to fend off hundreds and hundreds of Romans and then finally slink back into the wall. Titus was infuriated. He said, 
We have only three battering rams left. We're going to guard them very, very carefully. But encouraged by the strength of the Brionum's first foray, four boys, four young men, Tosvius from the Galilee, Magarus from Hebron, Yerom from Samaria, and Arias of Yerushalayim said, we're going to go out now and get the remaining three. And these were being well guarded. They advanced without fear, four young men against the camp of the Romans. And they started attacking the battering rams, the three remaining battering rams. And they were able to kill all the guards and chase them away. And anyone who came close to them, they would chase away. The Romans, in the meantime, were so afraid, they were just shooting arrows and shooting catapults. They were standing there, and now the terrorists had seen what was going on. They come out to defend these four boys. They burn the remaining battering rams and the siege towers. And there's a battle that pitches all night long. By the morning, the Jews are not only victorious, they carry, a ra- they carry back to Jerusalem. The battering rams were called rams. Often they would have literally like a ram, like a, 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 a metal ram at the top. So you'd have a long, wooden, heavy post, and at the top would be a metal ram, and they would use it to push it back in and out, in and out, and get, break down the doors. They dismantled all their battering rams' heads, and they're bringing it back to Jerusalem. And after that battle, they count in the morning... They had destroyed, they had killed 10,500 Roman legions and soldiers. For months and months and months, the Romans vacillate between trying to attack the Jews and every time they're repulsed by a weakened, starving populace. The Romans are at one point so exhausted that the nations of the world send soldiers from all over, 70,000, because the Romans were so demoralized losing to these Jews who are starving inside their city, that the nations of the world came and said, we'll help you. You let your legionnaires rest. We're going to help you. Now, time does not permit. However, the battles go on for three years, and when they finally breach the city, there are... First of all, there was hundreds and hundreds of thousands that had died from starvation, famine, disease. When they finally breach in, they were were applying their battering walls. At one point, the Jews were too weak to fight, so they just kept building walls behind the walls. Wherever the Roman battering rams would knock down, there would be another wall behind it. Eventually... There's a day where the Romans see a silver gate. They burn down the gate because the gate was wood on the inside and silver on the outside. The silver comes flowing away, the gate burns down, and there they could see right in front of them the temple. There was battles for days in the Azara, in the courtyard, where the battle was so thick that you couldn't go anywhere. There, was just, there were so many Romans and Jews fighting in the Azara, in the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash of the Holy Temple. That is the place that's supposed to bring peace to the whole world. Jerusalem is called Yerushalayim, from the word Shalom, Yerushalom, to see peace. The whole purpose of the temple is to bring down godly light into the world, to bring peace and love to protect not only the Jewish people, but the nations of the world. The sages tell us that if the nations of the world understood how much we did for them by the sacrifices that we brought in our temple on their behalf, they would set up guards around Jerusalem to make sure nothing ever happened because they would recognize how much we were doing on their behalf. Forget about our own. The Azara becomes a a place of pitched battles for days. Bodies piled up so high. Until finally, on the ninth day of Av, they come in and start to build, start, start to burn the base on Migdash. Now, what happens to Titus? Titus, the extraordinarily arrogant general of the, Jew, of, of the Romans, comes into the, the Holy of Holies. And the first thing he does is he stabs the parochas. He stabs the curtain that's separated between the Holy of Holies where 
God's Shekhinah most potently lies and the rest of the temple, and the parochas starts to bleed, starts spurting out blood. And he says, look, I have killed the Jewish God. He then lays out the parochas on the floor, brings in a woman of ill repute and commits a despicable act on it. I'm the conqueror now. As Titus is heading back to Rome on a ship, and many we've all seen pictures or we've seen it with ourselves, Titus' arch. In those days when a general was successful at a mission, he would come back, there would be tremendous days of feasting and parades in his honor and his glory, and they would build a massive arch for him to go through that depicted the battle scenes on it. He's heading back to Rome in all of his glory. He was the one who took down the temple of God. And suddenly a terrible storm starts. And it threatens to knock off his ship and just disintegrate it. So Titus looks up to heaven and he says, Huh! God of the Jews, I guess your power is only with the water. The people were sinning in the days of the great flood. What do you do? You flood them. You had beef with the Egyptians. What do you do? You drown them in the water. Now I just destroyed your temple and you're going to make a storm against me? Why don't you come onto dry land and fight with me? A voice comes out from heaven and says, Titus HaRasha, Titus, you evil one. Not only will I fight you on dry land, but I'll fight you with the smallest of my creatures. When Titus alights, as soon as he gets to dry land, he steps out on dry land, and they've got a wall of centurions around them, the biggest, the strongest soldiers. And a little gnat climbs in his nose and goes up to his brain and starts pecking away at his brain. The pain is immense, it's horrific. If you could imagine someone living with his brain being eaten away while he's alive. This was the punishment that God was giving for Titus for destroying and for arrogantly calling himself the one who had killed God. For years and years and years, Titus knew no respite. No respite. One day, he's passing through the blacksmith's area in the shook, and the little... Bug hears the sound of the blacksmith. Bang, bang, bang. So he... The bug stops eating for a second. It's like interested in the sound. So then he brought to his palace a Jewish blacksmith, and he said, I want, I want Jewish blacksmiths just basically banging here. I'm not paying you for your work. Your pay is you get to see the misery that I'm in. I'm the, the general who killed your, destroyed your temple... You get to see the misery that I'm in, but of course, after a while, the bug got used to the sound and it no longer helped, and the bug continued eating his brain. When he finally died, Titus, in agony and misery for the rest of his life, from the time he stepped foot on Rome, on, on his country, in Italy, from the time he re-stepped into the Roman Empire, until the day that he died, he was in agony all the time, horrific, horrific pain, and when, they, when he died, they did an autopsy. And they found that the, the little net that went into his bug was the size of a bird. It had sat there and feasted on his brain for this entire time. And miraculously, it, it had like metal-like claws. So we can't even imagine, we can't imagine the pain. The Jewish people were dispersed after the second temple was destroyed. The Jewish people were sent into exile and we're still here. For close to 2,000 years, we've been in exile. We no longer have a temple. We no longer have the security. We, Jews living in America, have had the extraordinary, rare experience of living in a country that has not tried to wipe us all out for the entirety of our lives. If you look at Jewish history throughout the Roman exile, there was very few places where you could point to where they had a hundred years of peace or even fifty years of peace. 
Tisha B'Av is the day we recognize the pain and the suffering of a nation that is lost, a nation that has no land, a nation that has no center, a nation that is still disintegrated. Of course, we, we live in Israel today, but that's, not, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a ghost of the former Israel. We live, many Jews, Baruch Hashem, thank God, live in the land of Israel, but that's a ghost of what Israel was, a mere fleeting shadow of what we could be. Despite all the contributions that we have brought to the world, and the contributions that the Jews have brought to the world are too far to count. We still remain a nation that is the most hated nation in the entire world. But that's not what I'm worried about, and that's not what we should be worried about. The hate of the nations. The hatred that we should be worried about is the hatred that still exists amongst us. The sinas chinam, the baseless hatred, the inability to extend kindness, benefit of the doubt, love to people within our own nation who are different than us. The inability to see the beautiful neshama that is inside of everybody that makes us all the children of God. We are one mishpacha, we are one family, but yet we are so unfortunately disintegrated. I'm not worried about the hatred of all the nations around us. I'm not worried about the rising hatred on campuses and the rising hatred in the far right and the far left. I'm not as worried about the hatred and the anti-Semitism in France and in Britain and all the countries in Europe where you can't wear a yarmulke in the streets and everybody walks with a baseball cap because they're afraid to wear a yarmulke in the streets and you go on a tour and they say, put away your uh, Jewish star. It's It's not safe here. I'm worried about the hatred amongst us. We are the ones that need to bring the temple back. We are the ones that need to bring back Hashem to His children. Hashem exiled us from His house because He couldn't bear the sounds of His children bickering and fighting and biting all the time. And He said, get out until you can work it out. We need to work it out. One day Tisha B'Av will, will be a holiday. The sages tell us that today Tisha B'Av is the saddest day of the calendar. But one day Tisha B'Av will be a holiday because it will be the day that caused the pain, that caused us to finally see that the only way we're going to get back to where we need to be, the only way we'll have real safety for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren is if we learn to practice avas chinam, absolute free love. I love you because you are my brother. I love you because you are my sister. You don't dress like me. You don't act like me. You don't think like me. You have views that are radically different than mine. But I love you because you're my sister and my brother and we are family. If we can get that message because of the pain of the Tishabovs that go by, the thousands of Tishabovs that have gone by, and that catapults us, to once again embracing one another and becoming a nation. We will all become one society, one people. That will be the greatest holiday and that will be the nechama, the consolation that we are all seeking. May we all merit to see God willing soon in our days. Tishabov changing from the day of mourning to the day of greatest light. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.